Have you ever have you ever had to make a a really tough purchase? Have you ever bought something that you had to really think about buying before you did it? Now, depending on who you are, that can mean a lot of different things. I mean, I'm the kind of guy who can spend five minutes in the candy aisle at the convenience store struggling to figure out what to do with such a life-altering decision. Maybe that's you, but that's not what I mean. I mean, have you ever had to make a, a purchase so big, so significant, so important that you had to really think it over before you followed through on it? I can remember the first time my wife and I bought a car just a few years ago. Neither of us had actually bought a car before. Uh, We were fortunate enough to have a a number of cars given to us over the years. So uh, that was a new experience for us to actually have to go out and buy a car. Uh, We never owned a home or anything like that. We'd always rented. That car, which is now our Prius, was the first really big purchase that we had ever made. And so we went through the whole routine. We, we spent a couple of months at home talking about whether or not we really needed a new car. And, and of course, we finally came to the conclusion that we did. We looked at our budget to see what we could afford. And then we began to look online to get a general idea of what the market was like at the time. And, and we spent time discussing what sort of car would fit within our budget and what our preferences for that car, what those preferences would be. When the day came to start shopping, we drove to several different dealerships in town. We test drove several different cars, and then we go home and and, and talk over our our options for a few days. We spent a lot of time researching and thinking and, and, and researching and thinking because this was a major decision for us. I was in seminary at the time, and we were living off of my income, which was the income of a teacher at a private Christian school, which is to say that the income wasn't much. We didn't have a lot of money, and this was a big commitment for us, and so we took our time making that decision. Finally, we found a car we liked. We spent some time trying to negotiate the price of that car with the salesman, if you can call what I do negotiating, and we agreed to buy the car. The salesman, of course, pulled us into his office to draw up papers to finalize the sale, and he started sliding these papers to us across the the table to sign. And and I can still remember sitting there in this cramped office across from this smooth-talking salesman who was eagerly pushing one paper in front of me after another with a pen in my hand and a paper to sign, thinking to myself, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to agree to buy this car? I mean, the salesman was pretty good. Maybe I was getting swindled. Was I overpaying for the car? And even if I wasn't, was I, was I certain that this car could fit within our budget? It was a used car, and, and, and it was in pretty good condition, but did I really know it wasn't a lemon? What if it was? What if we got home and it started to break down all of a sudden? What then? And then I can rem- remember not... Actually, but, but, but mentally at least, just in my head, kind of closing my eyes and, and signing on the dotted line while thinking to myself, I sure hope I'm right. I don't know about you. Maybe you celebrate a big purchase. Not me. A few years later, we, after we bought our first car, Emily and I bought our first home. And when that happened, even Emily was sitting there in the title office asking me, 
Are we really going to do this? Are we really going to buy this house? When we got home that night, like, like home, to our very first home that we had ever purchased, that we could ever call our own, Emily turned to me as we walked up to the door and said excitedly, well, this is it. This is our home. I believe my exact words then were, don't remind me. <laughs> it wasn't exactly the reply she was looking for, but that's who I am. I'm the type that can get a knot in my stomach as I make that kind of a purchase. Some people aren't that way. They see what they want. When it comes time to sign the deal, they're thrilled because they're confident in their purchase and all they can see are the opportunities that are going to arise from this new purchase. I don't share that outlook. What I see is commitment, not possibility. And so I find myself constantly second-guessing, asking, are you sure? Are you certain you want to make this kind of commitment? Are you sure you even want to do this? Are you positive this is the right decision, the right call? Have you ever found yourself in this kind of a position? Have you ever found yourself anxious, hesitating to pull the trigger on a really big deal because you were afraid of what the outcome of that purchase was going to be? If so, then you can get a sense of the feelings that many of Jesus' listeners would have been struggling with. You can get an idea of the thoughts that were going through their minds as he delivered the statement in our text for this morning, which is Matthew thirteen forty-seven to 50, the parable of the dragnet. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Once again, that's Matthew 13, 40 to 7, 47 to 50. In Matthew 13, Jesus is responding to the blasphemy of the Spirit with a series of parables. The blasphemy of the Spirit, you will recall, was this moment in Matthew 12 when Israel's religious leaders accused Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Satan, thus blaspheming the work of the Spirit. That event became a significant turning point in Jesus' ministry because it signaled the certainty of Israel's rejection of His message. In Matthew 13, Jesus responds to this rejection with a series of parables. And he explains that these parables are designed to reveal truths about the kingdom of heaven to one group of people, while at the same time hiding those same truths from others. They are meant to reveal the truths of the kingdom of heaven to insiders, to those who had responded positively to Jesus' message, while at the same time hiding those truths from outsiders, from those who had rejected his message. Up to this point in the chapter, Jesus has taught about various aspects of the kingdom of heaven through the parable of the sower, the weeds, uh, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hidden treasure, and the pearl of great value. Now in this passage, he delivers the parable of the dragnet. This parable immediately follows the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. If you recall from last week, in those two parables, Jesus explained that the kingdom of heaven is an object of surpassing value. In the first parable, a man finds a treasure in a field, and upon finding the treasure, he goes and sells everything he owns in order to buy the field and become the undisputed legal owner of this treasure. In the second parable, a merchant, a wholesale dealer, is searching through the market looking for a deal when immediately he comes across this pearl of incredible value. In fact, it's a pearl of such great value that even he, a merchant, a man of considerable wealth, even he cannot afford to purchase this pearl without first selling everything that he owns to buy it, which he does. 
Last week I explained that it would appear that the, man, that the men in these parables represent the different types of people who come to the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. Throughout Matthew 11 to 13, Jesus' identity has been presented as a somewhat veiled reality. The people aren't really sure who Jesus is or what they should do with him. In both parables, the man suddenly realizes that there is this remarkable treasure in front of him. And this would seem to represent those who, in spite of all the confusion and obfuscation, they realize that Jesus is right there in front of them. The Messiah is right there in front of them, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. The first man is a man who stumbles upon this really quite by accident. I said this man represents the irreligious individual. This isn't someone who is out looking for the kingdom of heaven or anything of that sort. He just sort of comes upon them. One day they wake up and begin going about their day as they've always done, just living for themselves, when suddenly they realize that eternal life is being offered to them through the gospel of Christ. By contrast, the second man goes out looking in the marketplace for a deal. He's looking for a good buy when he stumbles upon this pearl. I said this man represents the religious individual. This is someone who is looking for the kingdom of heaven. They are searching for God. They're seeking eternal life. And then lo and behold, they finally find it in the person of Christ. They're looking, and then while they're looking, they actually find what they're looking for. What the parables teach ultimately is that the kingdom of heaven is of such tremendous worth that both of these men are willing to surrender everything that they own in order to obtain it. There is a cost to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has has made that point clear throughout this gospel, and he's going to continue to make it even clearer. Jesus demands repentance in the true sense of the word. He expects his disciples to turn from both their sinful self-reliance and their worship of idols, and to instead worship God with an attitude of complete humility. They must seek to become completely dependent on God and submit entirely to his will. And of course, this is expressed first and foremost by coming to Jesus, God's Messiah, and yielding to His message. It means accepting His status as God's Messiah. It means accepting His teaching as it pertains to God's expectations for righteousness. It means coming to Him and asking for the grace and mercy needed to be reconciled to God. That kind of repentance, clearly, is going to come at a cost. There's going to be something lost when a person comes to Christ in this way, with this kind of an attitude. And it doesn't matter really who you are, everyone is going to lose something when they come to Jesus. The irreligious person, the one who stumbled on the treasure, they're going to have to give up their sin. The Matthew Levi's of the world are going to have to cease defrauding others through their dishonest tax collecting. They're going to have to give up the wealth that they, can, that they gained through their dishonesty. They're going to have to give up their sin. The religious person, the one who searched for and found the pearl, they're going to have to give up their comfort and self-righteousness. The Pauls of the world are going to have to give up their legalistic religion in order to practice the kind of righteousness that Jesus demands. This humble and dependent trust on God. Even the Peters and the Johns of the world may have to leave their careers behind in order to follow Jesus. Or they may suffer persecution for their faith. They may be ostracized from their religious community, cut off from their own people for their commitment to Jesus. Truth is, nobody practices the righteousness that Jesus demands apart from Jesus. 
And so absolutely everyone, everyone will be changed by Jesus when they accept His message and come to Him in faith. Nobody practices the kind of faith that Jesus demands on their own. And so absolutely everyone will be completely transformed through this faith when they exercise it. And this means that there's a cost for everyone. Everyone will lose something when they come to Jesus. The irreligious may lose the poverty of their sin, but even the religious must give up the riches of their religious lifestyle because even that will be radically transformed by Jesus. So there's a cost for everyone. What the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value teach is that that cost, that cost, whatever it may be, it is totally worth it if by through it a person may gain access to the kingdom of heaven. The first man sells all he owns for joy of purchasing the field. The second man sells everything he owns for the pearl because he can recognize that the pearl is worth more than all of his possessions. The idea is that whatever it is a person may have to give up in order to gain Christ, it is worth it. And the purpose of these parables, of course, is to call people to make the decision to respond to Jesus' message in faith. Again, it would appear that Jesus is talking to the crowds in these parables as well as the disciples. There are some in these crowds who have ears to hear Jesus' message. They can understand what Jesus has been teaching throughout His ministry, and they can recognize that the power of God is working through Him to authenticate His message. In short, they can see that Jesus is who He says He is, and they can understand what He's asking for. However, they're not sure that they want to respond. Some may not want to give up their sin in order to follow Jesus. They're the, the thorny soil who have heard the message and understood it, but are being choked out by the concerns of this world. Still others may not want to give up this so-called righteousness in order to follow Christ. They're the rocky soil who have heard the message and understood it, but who fear the suffering they'll face for knowing Christ. They're concerned about how their faith in Jesus is going to be accepted by a community that is already plotting against Jesus in order to destroy Him. Jesus delivers this parable and and, and says to them, Do you understand? There is a price in following me. But it's so incredibly worth it. He's trying to encourage them to leave all those cares, all those concerns behind and act on what they know to be true by following Him. The problem, however, as you know, again, if you've ever had to make a really big purchase in your life, is that when it comes time to commit to something like this, to put the money on the table, to actually sign that dotted line, the problem is that when that time comes, there are naturally going to be some doubts that begin to creep in, some second guessing. Someone can say, okay, this is a good deal. I want this. But as good as that deal may be, whenever you are talking about something that comes with this kind of astronomical price, there's going to be some hesitation. A person is going to go, okay, am I really going to do this? Jesus knows this. 
And so he doesn't stop with the parables of the treasure and the pearl. He addresses this hesitation as well, this fear, actually. And he does this with the parable of the dragnet. It is, again, decision-making time. Jesus is wrapping up this discourse on the parables by calling his listeners to decide, to fully commit themselves to his Messiahship. And as Jesus' listeners are faced with this choice, they're facing this dilemma, they believe in the truth of Jesus' message, and they may want to accept it, but again, there's this tremendous cost that they'll have to pay to do it. And they're not sure they want to do that. Well, with the parable of the dragnet, Jesus simplifies this dilemma. He shows them that this difficult choice, it's actually not a difficult choice at all. If they really believe that Jesus is everything that He says He is, then this decision is a no-brainer. They must pay that price. There is no other option. Let's go ahead and look at this parable together. It's a pretty short parable, and if you know anything at all about Christian doctrine, then it isn't very hard to understand. It's very simple. So it shouldn't take me too long to explain the meaning of this parable, and then we'll jump into the implications. The passage, once again, is Matthew 13, 47-15, and Jesus continues His explanation of the kingdom of heaven by saying this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good in the containers, but threw threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven and he's at this point where he's calling on his listeners to accept his message and respond to it in faith by following him. And what does he say that the kingdom of heaven is like? He says it's like a dragnet which is thrown into the sea in order to catch fish of every kind. There were several several different types of fishing practice in ancient Palestine, and one of these included the use of this large dragnet. With this type of fishing, a large net would be moored onto the shore on one end, and then a boat would go out and, and take the other end and make a large circle in the water with this net. There would be weights attached to the bottom of this net and floats were attached to the top so that by the time that the boat had made this circle with the net out in the water before coming back to its starting point on the shore, the net had essentially fenced in and trapped every type of sea creature within this net. This net would then be pulled ashore and as it was pulled in, it would literally pull in everything that was within the circumference of this net when it was laid out. Fish, weeds, junk that had fallen into the water, it was all pulled in by this net. And of course, this meant that not everything that the fishermen dragged in with this net was was usable, edible. In fact, not even all the fish that were caught were edible. Some fish just don't make for good eating, eating, of course. But but even beyond that, the Old Testament law had strictly prohibited the eating of certain types of, of fish and sea creatures. So once this net had been drawn in, the fishermen would then sit down on the shore and sort out their catch, separating what was usable, what was edible, from what was not. They took all the junk and all the inedible fish and they cast that aside. 
And then they would collect the good fish, and they either took them home to eat, or they would take them to the marketplace to sell. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like this kind of fishing. And he explains how in verses 49 to 50. He says, So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, just like this dragnet sweeps up every kind of fish in the lake so that they can all be sorted out on the shore, so it will be with the kingdom of heaven. When the time for judgment comes, God will gather in every type of person, all people, every single person will be collected together before God just as the fishermen do with this giant dragnet. And then God will enter into judgment and separate out the evil from the righteous. And note here, by the way, how Jesus describes this. This is not the righteous being separated out from the wicked. They're not being identified and set set aside away from the unrighteous. Rather, it is the wicked who are being separated out. They are being identified and then set aside from the righteous. In other words, it is not a judgment in general that is the focus of this parable, but condemnation specifically. In fact, if you look here, Jesus doesn't give any description whatsoever of what happens to the righteous in this parable other than to say that they're gathered into containers. But in verse 50, he says that the wicked will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And of course, at this point, Jesus is speaking about hell. The wicked are going to be kicked out, evicted from the kingdom of heaven, where they will be judged by God for eternity in hell. That's the picture described in this parable. It's a parable about the coming judgment of God against the wicked. And in case you're wondering, the point here is is not the same one that was made in the parable of the weeds. The parable of the weeds, you will recall, was a parable that explained the timing of God's judgment. It explained that there would be a period during which the wicked and the righteous would be allowed to coexist before the final judgment. That's different than what's being said here. This parable is not about the timing of God's judgment. It's about the separation that will occur when God judges. Just as the fisherman's dragnet pulls in every sort of fish, which then must be separated out by the fisherman, so it will be with the kingdom of heaven. The authority of the kingdom of heaven is going to extend out and sweep in every kind of person. And then once that is done, the evil are going to be separated out from the righteous and expelled into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the meaning of this parable. Now what are its implications? Or to be more specific, how does this parable address the fear that Jesus' listeners were wrestling with as they considered the cost of the kingdom of heaven. I've said that there's this cost of the kingdom of heaven that absolutely every person must pay in order to enter into it. And it it is a steep price. Now again, just like I said last week, this doesn't mean that salvation is not free. Salvation is free. It is a gift given without cost through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, as paradoxical as this may sound, that faith is still costly. 
This is because although there is no payment made to God when a person practices this kind of faith, there's still a kind of loss that occurs. The, the believer leaves behind their sin and their sinful flesh rages against this decision. The, the believer trusts in Christ rather than their works and, and the control and security they found in their self-righteousness is abandoned for the sake of salvation in Jesus Christ. They identify with Christ publicly and they're scorned for their faith. They suffer humiliation and perhaps even real harm because of their faith. They pay that kind of price when they follow Jesus. So although all that God requires is faith, and this faith renders no sort of payment to God for the forgiveness of sins, even still when a person exercises this faith, they will discover that there's still a price to be paid somewhere for this commitment to Christ. And it's a steep one. This is naturally going to cause a person to hesitate and second-guess whether or not they really want to make this kind of of a commitment. Well, I've said that in this parable, Jesus addresses that situation. He attacks the second-guessing and demonstrates that there really is no other option but to pay this price and make this commitment to follow Him and become His disciple. How does He do this? How does this parable address this hesitation? And I would answer it by saying that there are three basic thoughts that people will commonly wrestle with when they are faced with this kind of decision. There are three basic responses that they tend to give as they hesitate to make this kind of heavy commitment. And the parable addresses all three of these responses. The first response that a person will give when they're faced with this sort of a dilemma, perhaps the most common response is what I would call the bird in the hand response. You've heard the saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Well, that's the kind of logic that a person will often apply in this kind of a situation. They see this great opportunity sitting there in front of them, and they're tempted to take it, but there's obviously some risk involved as well. There's this tremendous cost that they have to pay in order to take advantage of this opportunity. And as safe of a, as a, as safe of a bet as this may be, there's still some chance that maybe they'll throw it all in and realize that the whole thing was a waste. It collapses and they're left with nothing. Because of this, very often they reason with themselves, well, I, I like what I have right now. If I play it safe, And don't go after this opportunity, then I know I can at least have that. There's no such guarantee with this opportunity in front of me. Yes, it it could pay off tremendously, but it could also leave me bankrupt. So it's probably better just to be content with what I have rather than to risk everything. And they turn down the opportunity. Again, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Again, someone's about to buy a car, and it looks like they've got a great deal. It's selling at a very reasonable price, but they're so scared at losing such a great amount of money if the car turns out to be a lemon or something like that, that eventually they choose not to buy the car. They play it safe. That's the kind of thought process that we're talking about here. That can, this can happen as a person evaluates the kingdom of heaven. They say to themselves, well, well maybe there is peace and joy and satisfaction in Christ, but maybe there isn't. After all, how do I know until I really commit to follow Him? And then what happens if I'm wrong? You know what? Maybe maybe my sin doesn't make me totally happy. Maybe it causes me a lot of pain, but at least it brings me some kind of pleasure. 
I have no guarantees about Christ. So I think I'm going to just stand pat right now and wait for a better deal. Or maybe they say to themselves, yes, Jesus looks like the Messiah, and what He says about righteousness and the law makes sense, but what if I'm wrong? Say I do away with my law-keeping and accept the righteousness that Jesus demands. What if I do away with all these external standards and, and practice the love that Jesus says I should do, and I just completely trust that God will forgive me because of what Jesus has done? Then suppose that's not what God wants from me. What then? Will will God judge me for my disobedience? You know, I like what Jesus has to say, but I I think it's safer over here with my self-righteousness. Even if I'm not doing exactly what God wants of me, at least He can't be too disappointed with me if I'm working really hard to to keep His commands, right? Again, both the unrighteous and the righteous can look at Jesus, see the cost, and say, I feel safer over here. So I'll just, I'll just hold on to what I have for the moment. I'm plenty happy with that as it is. So maybe the kingdom is of surpassing value. Maybe the treasure in the field is extremely valuable. Maybe the pearl can fetch millions of dollars, but there's nothing wrong with having enough money to buy a field, right? That's decent enough, isn't it? And the merchant, I mean, he's plenty wealthy as he is. He doesn't need anything more than that to be happy, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. What Jesus does with this parable is completely obliterate the notion that there is any sort of safety, any sort of treasure, any sort of blessing to be found outside of the kingdom of heaven. Holding on to the pleasure or joy or contentment that is found in your unbelief? That is not an option, according to Jesus. All those who reject this message, all the wicked who refuse to repent to the righteousness that Jesus demands, whether that be in the form of wanton sin or smug self-righteousness, all the wicked who refuse to repent to belief in Jesus, to the belief that He demands... They will be gathered together and thrown into hell at the end of the age. Here Jesus describes hell as a fiery furnace. And this is how hell is is consistently described throughout the scripture as a place where the wicked burn in in an eternal flame. For example, in, in the book of Revelation, hell is described as a place where the wicked are, quote, tormented with fire and sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In Revelation 14 and in Revelation 19, it is said that the smoke of the tormented goes up forever and ever. So there's no physical pleasure in hell. Only pain as the wicked burn under the wrath of God for eternity. Nor is there any other kind of pleasure to be enjoyed in hell. On three different occasions in Matthew, Jesus describes hell as the outer darkness. Thus it would appear as if hell is a place of utter blackness. There's flame in hell, but no light. Never again will the wicked even look on any good thing that the Lord has made. 
I mean, just, just think about that for a moment. That was the thing that, that really got to me as I tried to perceive the severity of hell this week. The, the blackness existing for eternity without any hope of ever seeing anything. Again, not just something you like, something good, but anything. Never being able to see anything again, just eternal blindness. That's what hell is. So there's no pleasure in this sense. Just a total deprivation of that sense. The wicked in hell can feel pain, but they do not look on disturbing or painful images or something like that because they do not look on anything at all. They are in eternal darkness. Now they may hear, but if you think about it just as with the fire, so also all they will hear will be painful. Jesus says that in this place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth, that might indicate that the wicked are are grinding their teeth in angry rebellion against God, even in hell. Maybe they're grinding their teeth in regret over their failure to repent at Christ. More than likely, I think, to, to pair this grinding of teeth with weeping, to put it in the context of agony and suffering, more than likely, this is the grinding of teeth that occurs when there's such intense pain that your jaw clenches and you cry out in agony. These are the kinds of sounds a person experiences in hell. They hear nothing but the tormented howls of the damned. The smells of hell we heard just a moment ago, sulfur, would be the closest description that we could find in Revelation 19. Again, there's just a total deprivation of any good thing in hell. The only sensation, the only experience is pain, suffering. And it goes on forever and ever and ever. There's no end to the torment. It is an eternal punishment. So when it comes to when it comes time to count the cost of following Jesus, let's not pretend that there's any kind of option to hold on to what you have. Jesus doesn't present that choice. According to him, the pleasure that the unrepentant presently enjoy in their sin will be completely replaced by the pains of hell at Judgment Day. There will be no pleasure left to enjoy at all. The security and the comfort that the self-righteous enjoy and their self-righteousness will likewise be completely stripped away when God casts them into hell for their sin. There isn't another way into heaven other than through the repentance that Jesus describes. There is either faith, there is either complete dependence on God, total submission to His Messiah, or there is judgment in hell. That's it. Those are your only two options. There are either the treasures of Christ or there are the agonies of hell. One can either choose to sell all that they have now in order to gain the treasure, to purchase the pearl of great value, or they can have all that they own stripped away at judgment day and be left with absolutely nothing to gain in return except for agony and grief. So no one can look at Jesus and say, You know, I mean, that that sounds good, but I think I'll just quit while I'm ahead. There's no such thing as being ahead apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus, you're only always losing. You're only on the losing end. Spiritually speaking, you can only end up in bankruptcy. Or to put it another way, there is no bird in the hand. Again, this is the mindset that people can sometimes apply when it comes to this kind of serious decision. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? No. 
There's no bird in the hand in this situation. It's an illusion. It's make-believe. There's only the two birds in the bush. So, I mean, this is, this is really how hard of a decision it is. You can have Jesus and all the joys that come with Him as well as the present sufferings. Or you can have nothing. Nothing that is except torment and agony. You can have temporary suffering, suffering now along with a number of joys and even more joy and blessing to be added on top of that for eternity in heaven. Or you can have temporary pleasure, security, comfort, whatever, now, along with many pains, with even more pain to be added on top of that for eternity in hell. Suddenly this isn't such a difficult decision to make, is it? It's very, very simple. And that's the design of this parable, to remove this kind of of objection. For the person who can perceive the truth of Jesus, and that's who this parable is intended for, it's for those who have ears to hear. For that individual, this parable simplifies the dilemma that they're facing, and it shows them that Jesus is really their only choice. The second response that a person can give when they're facing this kind of tough decision is the Superman response. The Superman response. This is where a person, for one reason or another, thinks that somehow the laws that govern this universe somehow don't apply to them. And sometimes this will factor into a person's thought process when they're, fa- when they're uh, making a, a really, really difficult purchase. Again, maybe they're looking at two different kinds of cars, and one is more expensive, but it's obvious that it's in good condition. It's been well taken care of. There are clear service records showing every time the car has been in the shop and repaired on. Uh, The mileage is low. It's a newer car. The other car is less expensive. And it sort of looks okay on the outside, but you're not really sure about it other than that. It's a little bit older. The miles are, are significantly higher. In that situation, it's clear which car may be the more reliable one. It's it's clear which one may be worthy of the initial investment, but it's just so much money to to commit on one vehicle. Now, in car buying, there are a lot of different factors that may lead a person to buy the cheaper car, but sometimes Superman uh, Superman thinking creeps in, and it's bad when that becomes the basis of the decision. And what I mean is that sometimes a person can look at that situation and think to themselves, yeah, I know, I know maybe that older car can break down, but it won't happen to me. I, I'm pretty sure it will keep running fine. And they use that line of thinking to justify their purchase of the less expensive vehicle. And this can actually affect decision-making in a lot of areas. People will hesitate buying things like health insurance, which can be expensive because they think, it won't happen to me, I never get sick. They won't invest in retirement because somehow they don't think they'll ever need money when they get old. There's just this perception that people tend to naturally have where they think bad stuff won't ever happen to them. Sure, they see it happen to other people. Other people end up old and poor because they never save for the future. But somehow that won't happen to them. There won't be any sort of consequence for their failure to plan. The rules of the universe don't apply to them. They're under a completely different set of laws, like they're Superman. 
or something like that. Again, the same thing can happen spiritually. Someone can think to themselves, I don't really need to repent. Because this sort of judgment, that's not going to happen to me. I don't, I don't need to make this kind of a commitment because there's just no way that this is ever going to happen to me. Either the person has somehow fooled themselves into thinking that they will not die. They just don't see how one day it will be them in the car accident or them in the hospital dying of cancer, even though they've seen it happen to so many other people before them. Or they think that somehow they will escape God's judgment if and when they do die. Some people think this. I mean, they know that the Scripture says that every man and woman is a sinner condemned by God apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they start thinking that there's still going to be some sort of option that will allow them to escape God's condemnation of their sin on Judgment Day. Again, the wanton sinner may say to themselves, but God is such a good and loving God, right? So there's no way that He can actually send me to hell for eternity. That would be unjust. That's unfair. Even though I know that's what the Bible says, I just, I just don't think that will happen. There has to be another option. Hell can't really be eternal. Maybe it's only temporary. Maybe God just annihilates the wicked when they die. But there's no way He'll actually punish me forever. I'll be all right. Or or maybe they think to themselves that when that day comes, they will somehow be able to stand in judgment over God. The atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would say if God suddenly found him, or what he would say to God if he suddenly found himself standing before God in judgment after he died. And his reply was to say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Maybe the wanton sinner thinks that they'll do that. They'll turn the tables on Judgment Day and put God on the witness stand and force Him to let them go by exonerating themselves of any sort of culpability for their sin. The self-righteous may be thinking to themselves, look, I know God says that the only way to heaven is by complete dependence and faith in Jesus, but that's really going to upset my whole life in, in ways that I'm not ready for. Is God really going to judge a person like me? If I don't exercise that kind of faith, I mean, surely not, right? Surely those passages that speak of hell are for the especially wicked, not for someone like me who tries hard to obey God. On on Judgment Day, I'm sure that God will look at my heart and see what I meant, even if I don't think that's what Jesus actually commanded to do. That's what Jesus actually commanded me to do. God will see that I meant well, and He'll accept me, right? Again, there are a few different ways that a person can do this, but in the end, they trick themselves into thinking that the standards clearly articulated for salvation and eternal life in Scripture simply don't apply to them. They think that they're the exception, and they use that logic as an excuse to delay making any sort of real commitment to Jesus. Again, this parable addresses that line of thinking and completely obliterates it. The kingdom of heaven is like this dragnet that gathers fish of every kind. Once this net, this sort of a net is laid out, there's simply no escaping for any, listen, no escaping for any of the fish in its circumference. They're all being hauled in to be sorted out. 
So we can mark off the Superman response as a legitimate option in this situation as well. There aren't going to be any exceptions. As it says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Absolutely everyone will be judged by God. And as it says on several occasions in the Scripture, there is no partiality with God. So everyone will be judged by the exact same standard. There will be no exceptions. So once again, we can see how this parable addresses the dilemma that Jesus' listeners are facing. Once again, the choices are either A, Jesus, or B, hell. There is no third option. There is no C. The kingdom of heaven will sweep up everyone and gather them before God, and it is only those who have repented to the faith that Jesus demands. It is only those who are in Christ who will be deemed worthy of the kingdom of heaven and set aside and kept. The rest will be cast into hell. So again, this isn't much of a dilemma. A person can choose to invest everything in Jesus or they can have nothing. That's the choice. The third response that people can give when facing this kind of a decision is the tomorrow response. The tomorrow response. This one's obvious enough. This is when a person is faced with a tough decision and they say to themselves, I just don't want to decide right now. Uh, maybe I'll get around to it tomorrow. This is the non-decision. The person can, can see what they should do, but again, they're afraid of making such a serious commitment, and so they just kind of avoid making a decision by delaying the decision until later. And this gives them comfort. It tells them uh, that they didn't actually reject the offer that was on the table. The offer was just pulled before they had the chance to decide. Again, people will do this when dealing with a significant purchase. Again, maybe they're shopping for a car or some other expensive item like that, and they have the dealer's final offer, and it seems like it's a pretty good bargain, but again, it's just so much money. And and they can't bring themselves to spend that kind of money, so they say, I just need a little bit more time to think it over, and then they just kick that can a little bit further down the street. And people do the same thing spiritually as well. Someone will comprehend the truth of the gospel of Christ. They can affirm the the truthfulness of His message. And they can recognize how much the faith demanded by Christ will transform their life. They can see the cost of discipleship. And yet hesitant to make this kind of radical commitment, they'll say to themselves, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. I just need a little bit more time. I want to hang on to my lifestyle a little bit longer and and then when I'm ready, I'll pull the trigger and commit. Again, the wanton sinner may say to themselves, you know, I can see the the truth of the gospel and I can see the goodness of Christ, but I I just really enjoy my sin too. Maybe I can just live this way a little bit longer. I'll enjoy my sin a little bit longer and, and then when I've had my fun, I'll repent and completely devote myself to Christ. The self-righteous will employ a similar line of thinking, saying to themselves, I don't want to give up my security just yet. I don't want to forfeit the status I enjoy among my peers just yet. And I especially don't want to start living with the kind of sacrificial love, a kind of love that requires a total trust in God. I don't want to love that way just yet. But I'll get around to it. There'll be another opportunity down the road, and I'll do it then. Of course, the danger in, with this thinking of saying to oneself, I'll do it later, is that there may not be a later. 
you say to yourself, maybe I'll buy the car tomorrow. And after you think about it a few more days, you decide, okay, I'm ready to commit. And you show up. The car's gone. You just missed it. Someone else came along a few hours before you, someone who was a little bit more decisive than you were, and they snatched that deal up. Everyone's experienced this, right? The, the regret of a lost opportunity. Well, it's the same thing in this parable. You see, the fish don't realize that the dragnet is being set until it's too late. From their perspective, life is going on as, nor- as normal. The, the trap that is being set for them is happening so far away from them that they don't even realize that they're being ensnared. They have no thought of escaping because they don't see themselves as being in any sort of immediate danger. But then by the time the net is set and the fishermen start to pull it in, it's too late. There's no chance for escape at that point. The time for separation has arrived. Now I admit, maybe I'm, maybe I'm pushing the imagery in this parable just a little bit here. Jesus doesn't say anything about how the net, when the net is set, the fish aren't aware of it. And, and to do so would imply that there is some ability to escape God's judgment when that's not the point here. Every fish will be separated when the net is pulled in. There is no escape from the judgment that will occur. But at the same time, it's still clear from this parable that the judgment of the kingdom will not only be universal, but it will also happen unexpectedly. And this is consistent with the testimony of Scripture. As Jesus says regarding the day of the Lord in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 39, He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As Paul likewise says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. People of every type will be going about their business as usual when the day of the Lord comes and the dragnet is pulled in. It's going to happen unexpectedly. And if we were to extend that analogy out a little further, we can see that this is true not just for the kingdom of heaven, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, but for every individual as well. Again, we kind of presume that the the same rules that apply to other people don't apply to us, meaning that we either assume that we are immortal or at the very least that we will live to a ripe old age and that we will have plenty of opportunities to repent before we die and face God's judgment. And this isn't true. Death happens suddenly and unexpectedly every day. But we fail to see this, and so we fail to realize how Death may be setting its trap in order to bring us into judgment unexpectedly. Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'll probably end up dying in a car accident today. And yet it happens to real actual people, just like you, every single day. Point is, no one knows how much time they have left. They may say to themselves, tomorrow, I'll take care of my soul tomorrow, but no one knows whether or not they'll even be alive tomorrow. And not only that, but once a person gives themselves over to their sin in this kind of unrepentance, who is to even say they'll have the opportunity to repent tomorrow? 
I mean, we witnessed Jesus pull his kingdom offer off the table in Matthew 12, and he began speaking in parables in Matthew 13 in order to prevent those who had rejected his message from gaining any additional truth about the kingdom of heaven. Who's to say that God may not deal this way with the one who delays? Never again sending them a gospel messenger to call them to repentance. There's no guarantee that that will happen. And again, this is made explicit by this parable. Just as the dragnet unexpectedly pulls in the fish for sorting, so also will the judgment of the kingdom of heaven arrive unexpectedly. Once again, Jesus simplifies this decision-making process for his listeners. They can either have the kingdom of heaven by placing their faith in him right now, or they can try God's patience and risk losing everything. While a person should be sure to count the cost before coming to Christ, at the same time, there should, there should be an urgency in them to do so as quickly as possible. There should be no delay when it comes to the kingdom of heaven because it is a limited time offer. And if people are not careful, then they will discover that they've waited too long and it is too late. The time of judgment has arrived. So that's the parable. Those are the issues that Jesus is addressing. Now, what should you do with it? There are two answers to that question. They're very simple. The first, of course, is repent. Repent. If you realize that, figuratively speaking, you have yet to purchase the treasures of Christ because you're worried about what it will cost you, worry no more. Jesus has answered that question for you. There's nothing of any real substance that you're going to lose in gaining Christ. At least nothing that, is going, that isn't at least going to be taken away from you anyways when you die in your unbelief. But there is a tremendous cost in rejecting Christ. That's what you should be concerned about. Not what is going to be the price of my faith. Rather, your concern should be what is going to be the price of my rejection. And the answer is everything. So Repent. Jesus has simplified this decision for you. If you can recognize Jesus' authority, if you can see that He is the Son of God, the Messiah, sent to save sinners from their sins, then there's no longer any dilemma. You will gain everything in committing to Christ in faith, and you will lose everything in rejecting Him. That's not a complicated dilemma. So quit your hesitation and repent. Like today. Confess your sins, repent of your unbelief, and ask for God's forgiveness today. Do it now, because you don't know when the dragnet is going to pull in and haul everyone in for judgment. That's the first answer that you should do about what you should do with this parable. Repent. The second is for those who have repented. The second answer is this. Persevere. Persevere. Keep in mind, Jesus isn't just delivering this parable to the crowds. He's delivering it to his disciples as well who have believed. In fact, Matthew is likewise writing this gospel to Jews who have believed in Christ. And what does this parable communicate to them? It it tells them that they need to persevere. Again, there's a cost to following Christ. And as a person endures the pain of this cost, there's going to be points where they begin to second-guess their decision and they think to themselves, is this really worth it? Should I keep following Christ? Again, the answer, according to this parable, is a resounding yes. 
So that's the second answer to what you should do with this parable. Persevere. There are a couple of other ways that we could respond to this parable, and we'll talk about those in our discussion tonight at 6 o'clock. But these are the main two. Repent and persevere. Which of these two responses applies to you? If it's repent, again, don't wait. Don't delay. Turn to Christ and do it today. Don't pay the price of your unbelief. That's a debt that you will never be able to pay. But Jesus has paid it. And He's done it at the cross. And now He offers you the riches of the kingdom of heaven. And He offers it freely. He only asks that you leave everything behind to follow Him. Do it today. Let's pray.